Good evening. This is Cinema 60. On tonight's program, Bart and Jenna discuss the LSD films of 1967. This episode is dedicated to Peter Fonda, who died shortly after its recording. We are about to take you into the world of the LSD user. A world that to him is real, yet as terrifying and unreal as anything ever imagined. Good evening, Bart. Hi, Jenna. Today, we are going on a trip. What kind of trip? Why, my good friend, we are going on a very special trip. A trip of the mind. A trip of sound. A trip of a trip of lysergic acid diethylamide. Will you be my guru? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, actually. You can call me guru. Today, we're going to talk about LSD movies. All right. Because you know what? I figured here we are in a 1960s podcast, and we have not really mentioned hippies whatsoever. Yeah, only kind of offhand. And that's kind of a big part of the 60s. That's kind of actually, I think, what defines the 60s more than anything. So, and that's not even opinion. That's like pretty much a fact. So why not? Why not go full on in and talk about some LSD? Yeah, let's dive headfirst into the Summer of Love, 1967. Right, which is a year where we start to see all of these movies about LSD popping up. And in part because LSD was not yet illegal. LSD, in fact, was only made illegal in 1968. It was became illegal to possess it. So at this point, LSD was straight up just defining the hippie movement and driving that stake into the divide of America's heart <laughs> during the 60s and really alienating the older generation from the younger. So it seemed, this seemed pretty good to me. This seemed about right. And plus, I get to talk about one of my favorite movies from the 60s, which is The Trip. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant uh, psychedelic sex kicks. <laughs> well, we're going to get to that one, too. Have you ever done LSD? I have not. And that's all I will divulge about any experiences I've had with any illicit substances. Oh, wow. <laughs> I can say rather proudly that the only time that I have ever done anything psychedelic was in Amsterdam, legally bought. <laughs> mm -hmm. No longer legal now. And uh, it was all right. But it was an LSD. I actually am pretty square. I'm just kind of convinced that I'm not mentally <laughs> sure enough to uh, take LSD. Sid Barrett has scared me off of LSD permanently and, and other acid casualties like him just uh, make me think, why risk it? <laughs> it's funny. I know a handful of people that have, have done it and had really great experiences to the point where like change their life for the better and they, and they feel so much better. Uh, I know a handful of people that thought like, meh, done it. I'm done with it. Don't need it. And I know one person that takes it continually and is a really functional human being. So I don't know. It's it's kind of, but I, it still kind of scares me away. But I have to say that what actually turned me on to the concept of psychedelics in general was the Beatles. I was like, shit, it's, if they can do it. Turn off your mind and relax and float downstream. It's even quoted in one of the movies we watch. Oh, yeah. So I, I thought this was kind of perfect. This is kind of my shit. 
you know, when you suggested this subject, the first thing I thought is, what what the hell are you thinking? These are all going to be terrible movies. I'm not going to be able to sit through any of these things. But then when I started to think about it, I realized that a lot of the, the visuals in later 60s movies are trying to capture what a, an acid trip looks like is really responsible for so much of, of, you know, not just the liquid light shows and colored filters. You know, you just see so much trippiness that, you know, cinema would have never gone there if it weren't for people trying to show what an acid trip is like. So I guess we have LSD to thank for that. <laughs> like big time. That's what I love about this stuff. It intrigues me, and yet I feel like I don't need to do it because I get so much of the best part of it from movies. <laughs> like exactly what I love to look at. Who needs it when you've got these movies? I'll go ahead and say that I was right. All of these movies are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, I was pretty fascinated by all of them. Only a couple of them did I fast forward through. Oh, how dare you? I watched all of these. Well, all right. There are a couple of them I I turned my phone on. (laughs) Did some scrolling at the same time. But I try not to do that. The fact is that these are all exploitation movies of one sort or another. They're either like anti-LSD propaganda, which is where we're going to start the episode, all the way to pro-LSD propaganda at the end. But they're all just trying to excite people with the subject matter. Nobody's trying to make a good movie here. They're just trying to like, you know, show wild kids doing crazy drugs and doing crazy things and exploitation movies are not my thing i you know i love those clip type documentaries usually featuring quentin tarantino where you just see the the best bits of all these crazy movies (laughs) to sit through one from beginning to end rarely ever appeals to me so this really was a trip for you it was a trip and not not an unenjoyable one (laughs) so we're gonna set the scene here we're uh we're in san francisco the year is 1967 we're on Hayton Ashbury, right in the middle of uh, San Francisco there, right where all the the hate meets the upper hate. <laughs> <laughs> An area that, that became defined literally in this year of, of 67, which is where you had a whole bunch of groups of kids hanging out that started to become a movement and not just a bunch of creepy kids on the street. So, <laughs> I mean, creepy kids on the street is pretty much what every one of these movies we watch is about. <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask. So we're starting in 67 and we're going to start with the squarest movies to the hippest movies, meaning that we're going to start with the, the most anti LSD films to then the most pro. So where better to start than with LSD trip or trap? is a a short film which was made for the police department with the help of one Sid Davis, who was, uh, and I want to mention the the ages of some of these directors for these first couple films, because this was a 51-year-old man who uh, got his start in realizing essentially how important the media was in forming other people's opinions to take certain issues seriously. 
And so he ended up reaching out to John Wayne because he was a, actually a, a, a like a stand-in for John Wayne in, in movies. That was his job because he was a big, tall dude. And he reached out to John Wayne, and John Wayne helped him produce his first film, which was called The Dangerous Stranger. And it was about how little children should not speak to strangers, and they need to take that really seriously because... At the time, there was, um, and this is in the earlier 60s, some story, uh, uh, you know, as it is about a stranger murdering a child. And um, he thought his own daughter wasn't taking it seriously enough. And so he produced this movie with John Wayne's money and he ended up making hundreds of thousands of dollars and thus ensuring that his weird uh, safety educational film (laughs) propaganda empire was born. And a lot of these movies were sold to schools and police departments and so LSD trip or trap, we're now, you know, several years into this. And, and this is exactly what that is. There's really, I mean, the, it's, it's a short film. You can watch it on YouTube. And I, I recommend that you do because it's, it's hilarious. It opens up with a car accident. And it's basically about these two squares. It's about Chuck and Bob. There's this great narration. It's like the, the most cop narration, too. It's very dragnet. Yeah. <laughs> Where they say, just a couple of guys in the midst of becoming adults, nothing to foreshadow the coming tragic events. And you're like, yeah, nothing except for this ominous narration. (laughs) (laughs) And the fact that these two teenagers are played by 38-year-old guys. (laughs) And it's like these overt scenes of like innocent, carefree, like flying a kite, (laughs) you know, like this is what the teens did. Yeah, it's basically just that some bad kids give one of the kids. I don't even remember who's the bad kid anymore. Chuck? Does Chuck get... I, uh, honestly, <laughs> I was just about to say, what, I didn't I didn't write down which one was Chuck and which one was Bob. I wrote their names down, but I forgot. They're the same guy. Uh, and uh, some bad kids give them acid, and, and it's peer pressure. They even, the guy says, oh, is this actually, uh, you know, not going to hurt me? And they're like, that's what the establishment wants you to believe. And it's like, yeah, this cop movie's telling you this. Um, but what's really fascinating about that, I mean, so yeah, and then he takes acid and then he dies in a car accident because that's what happens if you take acid, right? Mm-hmm. What's fascinating about this actually is you really get the propaganda lines about acid. So I'm not pro everyone getting like super high on LSD, but there's just so much false uh, information in this. That's all, and the whole thing's just scaremongering, you know, it's just this sort of really dismissive and overreactive, not really based on any facts whatsoever kind of thing. Really? It's, it sounded so true to me. I, it, it was so sciencey. It seemed like it had to be true. Right. Well, there's, they, they put in this line about how LSD will destroy your chromosomes and then just have you birth deformed babies. And then they show you a bunch of photos of really messed up looking dead babies. Um, and that was, you know, a really popular line at the time. That was what, you know, that LSD altered your chromosomes and, and, you know, ruined your chances of ever having a perfect nuclear family, which is all false. You know, there's nothing in LSD that alters your chromosomes. I mean, it'll change the way you think on like a psychic level man but like it's not there's no medical evidence that that ever happens and then showing all these deformed babies is also just it's shocking but it's also super tasteless so you mean i can't become an x-men by, <laughs> by taking lsd because i i really want to be an x-man i mean keep trying yeah. you know <laughs> just keep tripping <laughs> 
The one point that they make in this movie, though, that I thought was really valid is that they say that you don't know what kind of unsanitary conditions the LSD is being made in, which is literally what has stopped me from using the vast majority of drugs. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, of course, it shows you a really nasty lab that is probably pretty close to what these places look like that make the street corner drugs. Yeah, so I mean, like, that's legit enough. But the the whole thing is, you know, it really just reeks of cop. It doesn't ever explain why anybody would want to take it, like what positive effects they're thinking it's going to have. It really is just Bob or Chuck trying to be cool, and that's why he takes LSD and convinces his girlfriend to take LSD. And you actually see her trip, and she's totally freaking out. I love that the narration says that LSD brings you to a morbid introspection in place of constructive activity. And I'm Mm. like, yeah, so does life. It doesn't seem that bad. It's like besides after the dead babies. Well, and you have acid flashbacks while you're driving your freaking out girlfriend home and you'll die. Yeah, because he tore up that letter that said, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, but I'm going (laughs) to tell you how to live your life. Well, R.I.P. Chuck or Bob. So we actually, after that introductory short, we jumped into a couple feature films. Jenna and I kind of disagree on which is the more anti-LSD of the two. I argued that the LSD movie containing the horrific gang rape is probably the more anti of the two, but uh, Jenna disagrees with me. (laughs) Here's the thing. Okay, both of these movies are directed by the same guy, Arthur Dreyfus, aged 59 at the time also worth note, and the people that wrote these two movies with him also were in their 60s or something. I I did the math, but I didn't write it down this time. But they were all, this is all people that are far too old to get it, as it were. Uh, But yeah, one of these movies features a horrific gang rape. The other one features a suicide and a murder. And I think the suicide murder one is a little, (laughs) you know, more intense, but... But we'll, we'll talk about it. So let's start with Riot on the Sunset Strip. This is the L.A. set one where it's talking about the kids who are looking for a good time and what can they do other than hang out on the Sunset Strip and go to the clubs. But there's a uh, curfew where if you're under 18, you have to be home at 10 o'clock. And these kids are not happy about that. But the owners of businesses on the Sunset Strip just don't want these kids hanging around. So that's so they're fighting to keep the curfew and the and the kids are doing what they can to fight against it and... It all ends in a riot on Sunset Strip that's seriously anticlimactic after some of the uh, really shocking melodrama that precedes it. It's one of two movies I know of where Mimsy Farmer has an LSD trip. (laughs) Although this one, she gets to uh, do a really sexy dance while she's tripping. Yeah, and Mimsy Farmer is the estranged daughter of this cop who basically is the one cop that thinks that the kids on the strip are okay and he wants to give them a chance. But then it turns out he has this estranged daughter and, and the ex-wife is a is now a drunk. Crazy drunk. In, in a ne'er-do-well. She outs Shelly Winters, Shelly Winters. She's <laughs> such a crazy drunk. And so Andrea, 
played by Mimsy Farmer, falls in with this group of LSD-loving hippies because her mommy and daddy don't love her, essentially. So these movies, both of these are very clearly trying to understand what's happening in the most patronizing way. In Ride on the Sunset Strip, basically the the idea is that broken homes cause hippieism. (laughs) It's basically a bunch of all these storekeepers are are angry and yelling at the cops because of these idiot kids who are ruining the strip and causing all this noise. And they're all of those guys are like 70. And they're all bitching about these kids that are hanging out and going to one club, essentially. And these kids are shown as just having like no IQs, basically. And then there's like a couple of kids that are really reasonable and they they have actually some good lines where they're saying basically that they don't want to get molested by the cops because of their hair length and they would, they think they deserve a longer curfew and we go to college and whatever. So it's one of these, like, there's a couple of good ones in the batch kind of attitude. It's trying to be really even handed. And we're also, this is an American international picture. So this movie was created to appeal to the kids but there's also there's this long tradition of exploitation movies where you have to be showing all this like really fun crazy behavior that kids will enjoy watching and vicariously want to participate in but at the same time with the other hand you're also saying but this is bad this can't happen they have to be moralistic at the same time as as they're showing how awesome being young and stoned and dancing to garage rock to the chocolate watch <laughs> The Chocolate Watch Band, who's the <laughs> ugliest Mick Jagger imitator yep. I've ever seen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Straight up fake Mick Jagger, tepid music. Yeah, so the thing I thought was actually kind of interesting about this and why I thought this was slightly more pro-LSD was the fact that the acid trip that Mimsy Farmer goes on is actually, it seems pretty legit. That basically all these kids break into a mansion and they're all hanging out. And then uh, everyone's given acid and and then all the colors start going crazy. It's not very visually, it's not like exciting. It doesn't really capture what I would imagine uh, LSD is completely like, but it is that sort of cliche. All the colors go rainbow. And then she starts to sort of do this like sensual dance by herself. But you kind of get the sense because she's doing a lot of like staring at things and like touching and rubbing the floor staring into corners, rubbing herself all over. It's a very sort of touchy kind of thing, which to me just seems a little more realistic than what happens in the other movie. Except you don't really get any first-person perspective of what it's like to trip. The room where she's dancing is already, you know, it's got colored filters on the lights and dimly lit, but you're watching her trip from the outside and all the other movies you actually get the first-hand experience. There are moments in them that are trying to recreate what it's like to be tripping, and I thought this one belonged a little earlier in the sequence because it's all just kind of from the outside looking in. That's valid. (laughs) Well, and then, as you said before, uh, horrifically, she's so out of her mind that one of these hippie guys that brings her to the party basically date rapes her. He takes her up the staircase and brings her to bed and she's sort of she's so out of it she doesn't know where she is and then after he's done he comes downstairs and these other boys see him coming downstairs and they start going upstairs so you don't see anything thankfully and then uh, basically her father who's the cop uh, the cops bust the party and the father walks in on her in bed 
with all of this clothing everywhere, and it's clear that multiple men have been in the room. Oh, she even tells him. She says straight up what happened. Oh, right. Five boys came to visit me. And then he goes into a rage, and he starts beating up all the hippies, which causes the riot on Sunset Strip. Again, it comes from this like super patronizing, like super jerky way to just punish everyone, especially this character who... Uh, she has a good line where she's talking to her dad about how, you, well, where were you in my life? And, and he says, I didn't know your mom wouldn't let me talk to you. And she says, well, what? You're a cop. You could have made an effort. And he doesn't have anything to say. But also, like, none of that means that you're, you know, it's like, why? This is such a false equivalence. Like, because your parents are divorced, that you're immediately going to be drawn to a bad crowd. And then if you're drawn to a bad crowd, well, this is what happens when that happens kind of shit. So... And then, and then on top of it, the fact that they get all these hippies rioting after a cop beats up the guys that were raping his daughter, all the other hippies just think, oh, a cop's being, is just beating a guy up. Uh, so they all start to, to riot themselves, and they don't know that this was such a, a just cause for this cop to freak out. So the whole thing is just so patronizing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad that Mickey Rooney's son wasn't one of the rapists. Was he in this? Yeah, the the blonde Jim Carrey type guy. Oh, wow. There, Griff or something his name is. My favorite line in this movie is one that is sort of a mantra for all of these movies. Uh, one of the characters says, grass is fast, but acid's like lightning. <laughs> That's just beautiful. I actually, in the next movie, in The Lovins, which again is directed by Arthur Dreyfus, aged 59. Bye. I won't be there. comes from he, he's made at least 59 absolutely forgettable b movies starting in the 30s like not even b movies z movies that i guarantee you've never heard of any of these things but this is the end of his career and he's making these drug exploitation movies yeah they're basically they're like frankie and annette movies with liquid light and <laughs> and lsd and like a lot of severe consequences I actually found these two movies more enjoyable than some of the more uh, esoteric things we watch because they actually have plot lines and they get a bit melodramatic. The first third of both of these movies, I said to myself, there's no way I'm going to make it through either of these things. But when the melodrama picks up and it sort of becomes a regular kind of movie with awful consequences for rather minor infractions, it, it, they, they kind of suck you in a little bit, even though they're not very well made. Oh, I thought these were such a slog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The manipulations of dramatic storytelling won me over to a certain degree. But I thought the Lovins made hippie life seem sort of appealing, especially the one guy, Larry. I mean, he's sort of a, a very reasonable hippie. He sort of has these grand ideas and realizes how some of his ideas were kind of naive, and he, he has a realization by the end. And you think, if other hippies can be as reasonable as Larry, then uh, maybe they're on to something. Well, we should mention that there's basically two things that were huge influence on the plot of the yeah. Lovins. And one is that in 1967... 
Like, what, I, there's no way that this was made because of the human being, right? That had to have been... A, yeah, it was. It was? So the human being was in January of 1967 as a response to San Francisco outlawing LSD. You know, maybe not making it completely illegal, but it's, you know, the manufacture or the sale or just making it more difficult for people to use LSD. And the human being was sort of a rally to protest these laws that were, were starting to come about that were banning LSD. But uh, it was also just this gathering in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco just for all the different hippies to get together. Like, you have the peace hippies and you have the love hippies and you have... A lot of young people who are exploring alternate lifestyles, and but they don't all necessarily have the same focuses. So they're, you know, well, we watched a, a little documentary, you know, half hour thing that was just footage of the actual human being. And the narrator in that, who just has a little bit at the beginning, calls it a gathering of the tribes. And I think that's just a reference to like everybody who kind of identifies with the counterculture and you know alternate lifestyles just sort of coming together so whether you're political non-political whether you're more interested in the social uh, implications of free love or more interested in protesting the vietnam war you know just wherever you fall on in the spectrum of the left come on down to the human being and listen to uh, alan ginsburg recite some vedic poetry and dance like a goofball listen to timothy leary telling you to turn on, tune in, drop out, and, you know, listen to the Grateful Dead, play a few tunes. And The Lovins came out in July of, of 67, and it was supposed to be a, a fictionalized account of this human being that actually happened, and it's very much a fictionalized version of the life of Timothy Leary, the Richard Todd character, who's kind of the main character in this thing, is this... LSD guru who's turned into a, a messiah for the hippies of Haight-Ashbury. Yeah, who was a real doctor who got fired from Harvard for encouraging his students to take acid and then founded a psychedelic religion based on LSD called the League for Spiritual Discovery. Basically, he saw drugs. You know, I think Timothy Leary is pretty well known, but anyone who doesn't know, he, he saw drugs as something that enhanced engagement in the world as opposed to sitting around and doing nothing he thought that LSD was in some way advancing our minds and was of scientific relevance, which Harvard thought was horseshit <laughs> and uh, kicked him out. He's an interesting guy, though. I would recommend if you haven't seen it, like if you know the guy for sure, you should totally watch this. If you don't know him, it's a great introduction. Firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. He would invite people like Timothy Leary on, and he did in 1967 have... Timothy Leary as a guest, William F. Buckley obviously being the most conservative of conservatives here, but he was open to having a conversation with him, and it's super sarcastic, <laughs> uh, and I can't say that Timothy Leary doesn't 100% deserve it, even though I kind of disagree with everything William F. Buckley says personally, <laughs> but it's fascinating because you kind of get the sense that he's this misogynistic egomaniac for sure. But he also has some solid thoughts, you know, that, that he, he can see that there's such a division by age. He even says that people that are under the age of 30 are coming from a different way of life, brought up into a world that's entirely different than what anyone who's older knows. And you have to respect that to a degree. He says they're into experiments of consciousness and they're into being aware. And that's true. You know, in comparison to especially people coming out of the 40s and 50s, 
you know, older people and having that really rigid lifestyle and this sort of, we have to get back to, to the way it was that it never really was. And so now you have all their kids rebelling, essentially. He has an interesting point, but whether or not he's like <laughs> totally out there or not is, you know, it's like kind of up to you. I, I would say that he seems like a bit of a quack to me a little bit, but I do enjoy kind of some of what he has to say. And I think he's certainly an interesting voice of the time that deserves some level of attention. Yeah, he's a quack, but he was tall and good looking and distinguished. He was sort of a perfect leader for the hippies who wanted somebody to justify their use of psychedelic drugs. I don't think there's much interesting about him other than the fact that he served that role perfectly. Well, it might be because you're over the age of 30 and therefore can't understand what he's saying, man. Yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't get these crazy kids. <laughs> I'm of the booze generation. <laughs> well, so between those two things, The Lovins is essentially about Dr. Jonathan Barnett, who's played by Richard Todd, who resigns after two of his students, Larry and Patricia, who's played by Susan Oliver are expelled for publishing this sort of underground paper that's called Tomorrow's Times. And so all three of them <laughs> move together. They move in in a house on Haight Street with about five other people, and they decide to make Dr. Barnett is, is Timothy Leary. Like, there's really, it's him. <laughs> there's really not a distinction. He, he sort of sounds like him. He looks like him. And so they basically spend all their time publishing the, the good word of Dr. Barnett. And you get these sort of scenes of Golden Gate Park of people dancing the snake dance. And there is a good sign that says, please don't smoke the grass in the park. So phony, though. The sets are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, especially when you watch the actual footage of hippies at the Human Bee Inn, and they're all, they don't even look like they're having a very good time, but they're all pretty mellow and not doing a whole lot. And all these actors pretending to be these uh, stoned hippies just acting foolishly and i can't believe that there was ever anything close to resembling this happening at any point in time i'm pretty sure there is some footage of actual hate street though isn't there there might be i think only of hate street definitely the rest of it's pretty fake i mean i actually i lived in san francisco i used to live uh in inner sunset right below golden gate park Right by Haight Street, I could walk there pretty quick. And it's funny, I, you know, obviously when I was there, it was nothing like this. <laughs> we have the tech industry now. Hooray. But it's funny now to think that like Haight Street has become such the opposite of what it was in the 60s. You know, now there's like a diesel jeans and like Ben and Jerry's ice cream and stuff. It's so touristy. My first time to Haight Street, it was the day after Jerry Garcia's funeral oh. happened in Golden Gate Park. So it was filled with, with all sorts of hippies. So it actually probably felt a lot like it did at the time, 15, 20 years earlier. That's kind of cool. But this just looked like, you know, in between shooting episodes of The Monkees, they got the people in fake hippie garb to come in and, and shoot this crappy movie. Yeah, no, it's again, it's just super patronizing. All of the hippies are, again, they, they look like they have about one brain cell between all of them. And not just because they're stoned, you know, <laughs> like they seem like they can barely understand how to put their pants on in the morning. And like there are scenes where these bikers will come into Golden Gate Park and just start beating them up. And suddenly it's like becomes violent. And, and the movie really implies that the violence is because the hippies kind of asked for it. Mm -hmm. It's like really unsympathetic. It's kind of like, well, you wore that skirt. What did you expect? Kind of logic about uh, hippies. Well, 
they interrupted that football game yeah, they sat in right. the middle of the football field, so <laughs> they deserved it. Right, yeah, God forbid. So the, the plot, is, as it goes, is uh, they start to throw these parties. They turn Dr. Barnett into a, quote, profit for profit, as they stage parties where people pay to come see him, and then everyone drops acid. And there's a scene where Patricia drops a bunch of acid, double acid, and uh, immediately it turns into, it's so stupid, it turns into Alice in Wonderland, but it's really like acrobats and clowns dressed up like the caterpillar and like Tweedledee and Tweedledum and the sacred mushroom who's not an Alice in Wonderland character. And they do choreographed interpretive dance and they scream, take the acid, mellow yellow, like as the, like flashing lights happen. And it's so bad. But at least you're getting a first person account of what it's like to trip that's not what it's like <laughs> well but this is somebody's interpretation of what it's like it's like a six-year-old man's interpretation <laughs> you're seeing what patricia is seeing when she's tripping you know and it of course ends with her in reality taking off all her clothes in the middle of the dance floor and larry has to come rescue her yeah and then he takes her home and then she reveals to him that she was abused as a child right? She sort of implies it and he gets really upset and he flips out and then he swears off acid because she opened up this part of herself to him and he didn't like it, which is kind of a super messed up thing. I maybe missed that part of the plot. He was already turned on the whole acid thing at this point, mainly because he didn't like how Patricia thought that Richard Todd was sexy. Right. And then so he dumps her and then he spends all of his time now publishing about how Barnett's a loser freak. And there's all this circular half-assed logic about how he says, like, you know, you left your job because of this paper. And now you say it's trash. And it's like, well, yeah, you changed all the content on the paper to say that Barnett's a jerk. So, of course, he thinks it's trash. So, But then suddenly Barnett, he, he goes from this sort of like mild-mannered dude that seems to be sympathetic to the kids. And he immediately turns into this complete creep. Suddenly it's revealed that he's just a manipulative jerk and he like knocks up Patricia and then tells her to abort it. He's like a total egomaniac and he's using everyone for his own greed. And then everything about him is fake down to the fact that he's like bringing in a laugh track for his rallies. And then Larry takes it upon himself to shoot him in public and then turn himself (laughs) into the police. Both of these movies have the most anticlimactic climaxes. It's like, how are we going to end this movie? Uh, I guess we have riot in the title, so we have to have a riot on Sunset Strip. We call this the love-in, so we have to end it, this really fake recreation of the human being. And let's have Larry assassinate Dr. Barnett, turn him into a martyr. Oh, and, and this happens after they have another riot because of hippies. Oh, the football game riot. <laughs> You know, you know that one. <laughs> yeah, the famous football game, right? <laughs> Where they destroy Hate Street completely. Yeah, and the guy taking acid jumps out a window because he thinks he can fly. Yeah, so that guy kills himself in the middle of the street. And then that really turns Larry off. And then he, he has to do something about this. I mean, two people have died at this point. So. <laughs> yeah, but you don't care about either of them. At least uh, Mimsy Farmer in Riot on Sunset Strip, you're horrified by what's happened to her. That's fair. I mean, you, definitely you do care more about her, and it is horrifying, and I'm not going to defend it. <laughs> These movies, and especially this one, this one felt so schizophrenic. It just felt like they enjoyed too much of the drugs, and then the backlash was too intense. Mm-hmm. And 
there's also this whole idea again that this everyone secretly wants to be in, in like a nuclear family and how you know all patricia really wants is for dr barnett to marry her and have a child so that she can raise it and then when he says abort it and then she falls down the stairs and loses the yeah. baby but then you have that other awful father who tries to pull his daughter out of this communal living situation and he comes off worse than anybody and you're you're definitely on the sides of the kids there it's an untraditional lifestyle but it's better than wherever this hypocrite's coming from so that was really interesting and so there that was basically the father flips out he shows up at this house where everyone's living it's like six eight people or whatever and he flips out because she's living with black people in filth essentially like he's like clearly racist and then hates hippies and she has this great rant. I almost wondered if maybe this was like Dreyfus's own child told him this. <laughs> you know, because she has this whole thing about how they're not hypocrites and fathers generations of just boozers who sneak out in secrecy to have affairs. And uh, we're upfront about our affairs. And if I'm going to sleep with this guy, I'm going to sleep with him, which is a super legitimate line. Mm-hmm. And she also mentions that she says that you don't care about my happiness. You just care about your happiness, which I think was also pretty fair. So like that was really good. And in the beginning where Barnett also seems like a sympathetic guy. And then I guess it, it's almost like someone wrote a script based on the actual human being and then someone else edited it. Uh, so this is far too uh, understanding. And let's add in a bunch of murders. So yeah, so both of these, it's so obvious that someone older was writing these and, and directing them because the direction's also so half-assed. Even the, like, the stupid Alice in Wonderland dance scene, it could have been kind of funny, like it could have been amusing. It's just like embarrassing. It's amusing in a campy way. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I also really like Patricia falling down the stairs because uh, how else do we get rid of this baby? <laughs> I think Valley of the Dolls was also this year. I just love late 60s camp melodrama, and there's enough of that in both of these movies for, for me to enjoy them. But, you know, after this, we kind of move into the actual young people. Or no, no, next we've got a Weird World of LSD, don't we? Which is, I have no explanation for this thing. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> made for about $13, I can tell you that much. (laughs) So cheap. It's a series of unrelated case studies of people's experiences on acid. And there's a sort of legit sounding narrator who seems like he actually kind of understands the drug and how it brings out people's latent psychoses or exaggerates people's neuroses. But what the narrator's saying doesn't really correspond to what we're seeing on the screen with these case studies that are just so like unconvincingly captured. Just you know, just these people tripping and in black and white. It's directed by someone named Robert Ground, who, according to IMDb, has not directed anything else. He was 46 when he did this, so he's <laughs> still up there. And this one, to me, what this is here's my theory. Okay. <laughs> This is definitely like a nudie flick. But there's no... There is nudity. But it's basically like, I think that it was an excuse to walk the line and to get people in to watch 
women stripping and that they wanted to make it semi-topical. And yet they never really, they have these different characters who have different experiences on LSD and some are fairly pleasant and some are not. There's one woman who just, all she does is play with kittens for like several hours. Yeah, that, that seemed like a nice trip. And the, the narrator, I love the narrator. Actually, I kind of love this movie <laughs> because this was so stupid and also great. The narrator was my favorite. Like the cat woman, he says, her relationship to cats can hardly be fulfilling to a normal person. And I'm like, I this seems <laughs> great to me. <laughs> sort of like trying to warn you from doing LSD and yet at the same time everything that this guy is saying in this really ominous voice sounds super appealing mm-hmm. he'll say things like you get fantastic visions fall in love with a tree be convinced you can fly become an invisible god or plunge into psychosis and I'm like that's a bet I'm willing to take like heck yeah you know or like this sexy woman who just pets mannequins for several hours <laughs> Ah, yes, the sensuous, pleasurable sensations, you know, like, it's just sleazy. It just made me not want to trip because I don't want to be like these joyless people on these cheap looking sets (laughs) doing who knows what the hell they're doing. Well, you didn't want to be that lonely fat guy who who just (laughs) eats food, but then his stomach is empty because none of the food existed. I was like, that's just me every day. Or there's some women that get into a cat fight or there's narcissistic Daisy who cuts her clothing off and invents fluxus art, basically, <laughs> and then does a strip tease in front of everyone. And she's way too saucy to be unappealing. That's the thing. It's like, it starts off with this kind of really trippy, you know, like the cameraman's having fun. The editor's having fun. Like, I think everyone's having fun here. The introductory trip was very promising with the cheapest looking animation I've ever seen and the sweaty guy who's gyrating and making these horrible faces and ends up dead and blood spilling out of his <laughs> mouth and i thought yeah now i'm gonna be watching something that's it's worthwhile and boy was i disappointed well, after that. because after a guy like kills a woman because he thinks the devil's cutting his arm off in the form of a sexy woman after that scene basically it's just striptease it's just several different women <laughs> like i didn't realize how much striptease was involved in lsd taking because it's just several sexy women just going to town. Like, oh, that one in the jungle? There's this great narrator line there, too, where he says, the mind has taken complete control over the body. And I'm like, isn't that how it always is? It reminded me, do you know that Emo Phillips joke where he's like, I used to think the brain was the most wonderful organ, and then I realized who was telling me that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like... So it's just the whole thing is so bizarre. It has this menace and yet it's basically just it is celebrating. So this is kind of our middle point movie where, you know, no one wants to say LSD is really fun. And like, yeah, sure, maybe you'll murder a woman, but you might like, you know, make out with several kittens or, uh, you know, pet a bunch of mannequins like that seems fine to me. Well, this was definitely the low point for me. (laughs) I think it's more fun to think about now. Than it was to watch. It's because it's so segmented, I would almost say it, you could probably watch it. If someone's vaguely interested, if anything, just get in for that first couple narrator bits. That guy was great. This was definitely, remember how I mentioned I did a little fast forwarding? This was one of them. <laughs> kind of whenever the narrator wasn't speaking, I kind of zoomed through it. <laughs> I... So I didn't quite enjoy those striptease sequences as much as I probably should have. I think the striptease sequences is when I started scrolling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
so now we're kind of full on into accepting LSD. Bart and I have already taken a tab of acid uh, a full hour ago, so it's all kicking in right now. The next couple of films we have here are short films. One of them is Andy Warhol's Exploding Plastic Inevitable by Ronald Namath. really short film it's basically just uh, andy warhol would throw these parties exploding plastic inevitables and this is just concert footage essentially it's it's a party footage the velvet underground's playing a, a live performance before they were even the velvet underground i think well i guess by the time this movie came out they were more than just andy's house band but i think they called themselves the exploding plastic inevitable but very shortly afterwards started to call themselves the velvet underground and it's what four of their songs off their first album and it's yeah just people dancing and strobing lights and... yeah the lights are by uh, Danny Williams who worked at the Fillmore in San Francisco and yeah you see like Edie Sedgwick for a second do you it was hard for me to recognize anybody in there it's very dark yeah but it's just it's also the way that this film is shot it, you know everything is kind of out of focus and abstracted by the colored lights and it you know, you're seeing repeated frames and then chopped out frames. And it's an experimental film. You know, the music's good. The visuals are trippy, a little boring. I was pretty bored. Yeah, I didn't think this was anything special. But I didn't fast forward through this one because I like the music. But it definitely is. You can see this embracing LSD. It's embracing that liquid light aesthetic. And it's, it's just classic hippie shit, you know? Yeah. I see the factory, Andy Warhol's factory, as something very different from the hippie movement. I mean, the hippie seems so West Coast, and the scene is so East Coast. I don't know. It seems like the drugs are scarier, but it's all just LSD, I guess. Yeah, in that way, actually, this doesn't really remind me of Andy Warhol, the way that this is shot. It is, to me, a little more West Coast than at least any of his films are. Well, it's definitely more abstracted than any of his films, which just tend to be people talking. But I guess Paul Morrissey staged these concerts, and he was Andy Warhol's director. He didn't direct this film. I don't know. I felt like I was getting a little insight into what a factory party looked like, but the film itself didn't have a much of an Andy, at least what I think of as an Andy Warhol feel, where it's just uh, slow and uneventful um, with, with people improvising. You don't go to factory parties like this? Uh, it's been a long time, and I took so much acid at the time that I don't even really remember. Oh, that's fair. Well, the next short film we have is called Be In. <laughs> Jerry Abrams, which is exactly that human being that we were talking about earlier. But 
now you have a far more sympathetic view of this. It's also pretty short. It's basically concert footage that's being cut to music. You see uh, Ferlinghetti, you see Ginsburg, you see Timothy Leary. But it's a huge contrast from the documentary footage that we watch in the sense that it's edited to be super trippy, super fast and frenetic. It's in color. You get the sense of the energy more than you're actually seeing what's happening. There's no dialogue. If you were just shown this and not told anything, I don't know that you would really know what was happening. Yeah, I mean, it's just a couple songs by the Blue Cheer, I think. And it's yeah, just a lot of double exposed footage of the human being and fast editing, fast motion and optical zooms and things. It was interesting because it tells you it's like, I don't want to be dismissive. I, I kind of get annoyed when people just dismiss the whole hippie movement, which isn't to say that doesn't deserve criticism because it does. I mean, like it's the same type of thing where looking back upon something you can kind of see all the bright spots and all of the low points. Whereas in the moment, from anyone that I've ever spoken to who was alive at the time, it seemed mostly that it was just a big confusing mess. And you show up with one thing in mind, thinking peace and love, and then you get there and suddenly there's all of these other things that people are asking you to sign or do or uh, express or or take this drug. And, and maybe that's not your scene, but you're all there together. And so it was, you know, it is in that way unorganized. And so it's funny to watch this short film. It does, it kind of feels like it's a whole lot of nothing, but living in the moment and enjoying it, which from the documentary footage, the documentary footage almost feels more coherent in a way because you're hearing, you really only hear the speakers and you see that all these people are there for that. It was sort of interesting. It's definitely a big contrast and it's definitely more removed. This is trying to give you the sense of what it was like, even though it's, far more exciting than what it was like which was basically a lot of milling around <laughs> the park people sitting in a field doing not much of anything but it's also embracing that the whole psychedelic aesthetic and this event was you know at least partially a pro lsd rally just the way the film was made you don't have any idea what the context of this event is that you're seeing all spliced up and cut together but the style of it really is it's so reminiscent of what an acid trip is supposed to feel like that you know that these people are here doing drugs. But the next movie that we watched is very specifically about what it's like to do LSD. And in fact, that's the entire plot of the movie is a guy decides, hey, I'd like to try this acid stuff. And he finds a bearded Bruce Dern to guide him through his first trip. Yeah, it's The Trip by Roger Corman. Written by Jack Nicholson, starring Peter Fonda, Bruce Dern, Susan Strasberg. <laughs> you know, actually, a music by Mike Bloomfield in The Electric Flag, perhaps best known as the man who helped Bob Dylan go electric. Mike Bloomfield is part of his touring band. And then he got introduced to Al Cooper, who brought together the original Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and the two of them got together and they recorded a super session and the adventures of Mike Bloomfield and Al Cooper good albums and Graham Parsons actually is the band that shows up in the club oh really I didn't realize that I didn't realize that either until very recently but there's some star power in this one 
The soundtrack for this, though, is just a lot of throbbing bass, really. But it's perfect. I full-on love The Trip. It's one of the few movies I actually own on DVD, I will proudly say. Oh, and Dennis Hopper. How could I forget Dennis Hopper? Yeah. Who has basically every good line in this film. (laughs) (laughs) It's just... He's just being Dennis Hopper. I don't know. Peter Fonda gets some really good dopey lines while he's tripping. Peter Fonda not only freaks out in a closet because colors are attacking him, but he essentially makes love to a washing machine, which is one of my favorite clips in in all of movie history. (laughs) That whole laundry scene is actually really great. It's the highlight of the whole movie for me. I really love the laundry lady. Oh, she's great. And yeah, so the plot of this is that Peter Fonda is a commercial director. He is getting divorced from his fabulous wife who wears all pink. And he decides to go to this amazing looking house. I was actually looking up the locations for this. This house, the big round, there's like this round room and everything is just hand painted in rainbow colors, essentially. Apparently, Jimi Hendrix used to hang out in that house and it no longer exists. It got torn down. And then when he does his actual trip with Bruce Dern as his guide, who is the sober guide who watches him and and makes sure that he doesn't do anything crazy, which, of course, it kind of goes off the rails anyhow. That's a great, this great room with like a a pool that's an indoor-outdoor pool and a little bridge over it. And that building is still around, but they had to cut the pool to being (laughs) only outdoors because they were worried about people coming in and just like entering the house through the pool. (laughs) I don't know, that whole setup just kind of reminded me of a Bond villain lair. Oh, yeah. And it's it also like, you know, this sort of plush purple carpet with green wallpaper. I don't, The whole thing is just like so psychedelic looking. And it's just fantastic. I just love, I love the settings for these. And this beautiful, it's also like overlooking like all of LA on this mountain. Apparently Ricky Martin owned that house for a bit. <laughs> There's a fact. <laughs> Ooh. There you go. Yeah, I I love this movie because it's just fun. It's such a great mix of pretentious LSD iconography and also having fun with it and kind of acknowledging that sometimes LSD is really insightful and sometimes you're just like talking to a washing machine. There's all this medieval imagery that's very like seventh seal where these like figures in black are chasing Peter Fonda across a beach and... He sees all this energy coming off of an orange and he has these psychedelic projections over him as he makes love to several women in his mind. I mean, clearly Jack Nicholson wrote this screenplay from personal experience. Definitely the most convincing of any of these movies. I I actually felt like I, I had a pretty good idea of what an acid trip was like after watching this. It was edited by Corman, who actually took acid to maintain the integrity of this film. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah, he was like, I gotta know what it's like. So he did acid so that he could edit it properly, you know, Mm. for what it's worth. There's definitely some frenetic and and cool editing uh, once he escapes Bruce Dern's clutches and runs into the street and is on uh, like the L.A. Strip. Until it finally ends, and then it's just highlights from the movie edited together really quickly. Right. And that's a little bit lame. But where do you go? There's really no place to go. It's just an acid trip. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and and that's that. It's clearly the best movie of any of the movies we watch, but it's also not great by any (laughs) means. (laughs) Every time I watch this movie, 
I'm always trying to actually get to the plot, which doesn't exist, about him and his divorce. Mm -hmm. Because they clearly have a beginning, middle, and end for that. And yet, at the same time, there's nothing. You really don't get anything. Like, he doesn't seem that bothered about the divorce when he's sober. And then he trips on acid and all he can see is his ex-wife. And then this one girl that he briefly runs into just before he takes acid. There are several different blondes. I've seen this movie once before and I still can't distinguish one blonde in this movie from another. They're all pretty interchangeable for sure. And then you have Dennis Hopper who shows up. This is very Wizard of Oz. Dennis Hopper is just one of the guys who's passing the joint around. And then Peter Fonda sees him in like this sort of like wizard judge robe uh, riding a carousel. And there's all these political images like, you know, in this abstract glitter triangle room full of clowns and... And a dwarf. Most of these scenes, a dwarf shows up. I love, he, he like meets him, he's like, uh, I wish there was some like hip way of telling you this, baby, but uh, you're one and with the part of an ever-expanding, loving, and joyful, glorious, harmonious universe, man. It's like, yeah, like... And then he gets all pissed at him for shooting TV commercials, and he tells him to defend his selfish actions. And Peter Fonda's like, I just need to make a living, man. And Dennis Hopper tells him he's guilty, and he says, but don't wallow, it's fake. <laughs> So this is weird, but it's sort of approaching some kind of conclusion. And yet even the movie pulls away from it. And it just makes Peter Fonda just sort of paranoid. And he breaks into some guy's house and watches TV with a small child, which has actually the best line. Oh, yeah. Okay, maybe I like that scene the best. Better than the washing machine scene. Where he just goes, (laughs) I'm just a man. Yeah, so he's he's hanging out with this little girl on the couch, uh, and, and uh, her father comes down, and he runs away. It's great. It's great. Um, actually, the best acting is from Dennis Hopper in that later scene where, where Peter Fonda's convinced he's killed Bruce Dern, and Dennis Hopper really seems confused. Well, he's He's not dead, is he? I just spoke to him. I like that scene. Oh, yeah, and he says, oh, you, man, you think the cops are after you? You got to leave, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> Which is seemed real. Like, I, I bought it. I pretty much buy this movie 100%. <laughs> I just don't ever want to have to see it again. Well, and this is Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper in 67. And, of course, they all come together in 69 and make the movie that changes America forever. Mm-hmm. We won't tell you the name of that movie. Nope. We'll, we'll, save that. We'll, we'll save that for a later episode. Well, I like the trip. It's definitely pro LSD. I mean, they, they sort of, they start off with this warning about how, you know, the scenes that are depicted in this are, you know, not great. <laughs> Don't do it. But there's really nothing about this, especially Bruce Dern. I actually, Bruce Dern stood out to me a lot this time. I want to have an acid trip with Bruce Dern. Yeah. You know, like he was there for him. He got him apple juice talked really calmly and seemed like he really knew what he was doing. And it, it made the whole thing feel a lot more actually helpful. It, it seemed like this was actually something that could have been a good idea. And then Peter Fonda just kind of couldn't handle it. There was a lot of touching and it felt really sincere, like a loving touch, like nothing homoerotic about it. There was just, you know, Bruce Dern would put his hands on Peter Fonda every so often to calm him down. And I felt the love. I bought the love there too. I mean, maybe slightly homoerotic in the sense that Peter Fonda gets full on naked and Bruce Dern has to pull him out. (laughs) (laughs) But even that, I mean. No, it felt pretty straight. It felt pretty like Bruce Dern was really concerned for him and was really happy for him to be having this experience. So that was nice. That was very wholesome. 
I think if I was tripping, I'd really be focused on that small gray patch in Bruce Dern's beard, though. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but this may, it makes me want to do LSD to watch this movie, for sure. Especially in comparison to all the ones that we've seen. there. Like, even the, the bad consequences in this, there's no, nothing too bad. It's a little bit out of control. And that last scene I always thought was a little bit strange where he sort of exits uh, after making love to whatever blonde and this crack appears on the screen and it forms as if his mind has now been blown. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of ambiguous if it's good or bad, but I don't know. I think it seems pretty positive. Yeah. I mean, it says like, that's, but that's life, man. You got to take the good with the bad. You got to experience it all. So I think in the end it was a pretty positive message. But not as 100% positive as the next movie we watched, which if, <laughs> if you want to watch a movie that makes you want to drop acid, watch Psychedelic Sex Kicks. So you said that the lead guy in this is the inventor of the Liquid Light show? He's he's one of the originators. Glenn McKay, who was 30 years old at the time. We didn't mention the ages of Dern and Fonda and Dennis Hopper, but they were all very young for the trip. And so I think that's worthwhile mentioning. And Jack Nicholson was very young writing that. So now we're getting into the people that are actually doing acid. They're actually writing these movies. <laughs> Um, but this, I would I, honestly, I, I would barely call this a film, even though it is about an hour <laughs> long. Uh, this is just, it felt like a, like a hippie noir softcore film. It stars this Glenn McKay and he was an abstract expressionist painter and he was inspired to work with projections after going to one of Ken Kesey's acid tests in San Francisco. And he also worked at the Fillmore and he later was touring with Jefferson Airplane. So he became really well known for, you know, liquid light. Which, unfortunately, you don't really get in this movie. I actually would have appreciated something yeah. a little better. You get balloons. Yeah, than just balloons. Like, the, the plot of this is just that. And it has also, again, this, this voiceover, like, noir that's, like, really sleazy. I enjoyed the narration of this. Or I at least enjoyed Glenn's narration. Because he's got the patter down. He, he's like the a walking, talking hippie Bible. <laughs> And I just, I liked his, like, 100% sincere delivery of just how great it is to live free and pick up cool chicks in Golden Gate Park and bring them back to your pad and everybody drops acid and play with your jewelry for a while and take your clothes off. and No AC and no heat. We make our own, you dig? Yeah, that stuff. Like, I could listen to an hour of that stuff and with whatever <laughs> visuals, but then it he sort of runs out of material there, so then they just have this really repetitive narration from a woman. Teach me love, enlightenment, yeah. pleasure, guru. And she's like, sounds like she's orgasming. It just like repeats over and over and over and over, and it's so bland. And of course, it's, yeah, this guy, he picks up these two chicks in the park. They immediately get high 
And then they take acid and immediately both of the girls take all their clothing off and they sit there naked and then cuts into this whole other, they bring in all these other women who have much larger boobs because, uh, you know, you gotta, gotta keep it moving in this movie here. And, and then they start painting flowers on their boobs or they just gyrate as they talk about, teach me love, enlightenment, pleasure. And there's a snake. There's a snake. <laughs> I forget the order of things, but I, I think there's a snake, then there's balloons, then there's body painting. Oh, you're right. I, I think you're right. All... And then there's people sliding around in paint naked, which is pretty 60s. Yeah, it's a very 60s experience. I thought this was worthwhile just because it captures the spirit of the times in a really authentic seeming way, even though it's an excruciatingly long hour to sit through. <laughs> <laughs> this was the other one I fast forwarded through. When I realized that the female narration was just going to repeat itself endlessly. The guru speaks to me. The life intensity explores my soul. Yeah, it's fucking terrible. I, well, I didn't fast forward, but I tuned out. I dropped out, as Timothy Leary wants me to, as I was watching this. All right, for the sake of embracing LSD, for sure, this is definitely having a great time. <laughs> Instead of doing LSD and having a, a mixed uh, emotional reaction... For once, this is like strictly a pretty positive, you know, you just see a whole bunch of boobs. Like, that's it. That's all you get. (laughs) Yeah. Which, you know, I guess is, you know, in comparison to almost being hit by a car or something or getting murdered or whatever, gang rape, not bad. Although surprisingly unerotic. The narration is talking about the pleasures of making love when you're tripping on acid. But, you know, everybody's naked, but it's it's so chaste. Well, he has his pants on the whole time, which is so typical. Like, all the women are stark naked and full frontal, and and he's sitting there with his pants on just, like, smiling like an idiot. (laughs) When he's crawling through the balloons, I think you get... Yeah, you see his butt. That's it. I do wonder how many people got to see this. It's funny, if you search for Glenn McKay, you can get a lot about his art career. You do not get so much about this film whatsoever. And, I mean, there's a chance that it isn't the same guy, but I'm pretty positive it's the same guy. He looks like him. Well, I mean, this movie and the weird world of LSD were just you know made for pennies and were meant for the grindhouse circuit. Like, probably showed you know as a one of several films and some like grubby 42nd street theater for a little while and you know if you paid your quarter you might stay for a bit of this movie and both movies make you feel dirty (laughs) and part of it's the budget and part of it is just the the fact that there are no excuses being made for just showing you boobs and trying to titillate you and they make me feel oogie (laughs) (laughs) these movies and i just really don't know how many people could have actually seen these super low budget things whereas the trip i think it was it did pretty well it was it was wildly successful yeah that's one of aip's biggest movies and it was banned in the uk until it was released in 2004 right and since it's strip and the the love-ins they probably had their brief run but i don't think anybody remembers them too fondly but the trip it's likely that if you lived through 1967, The Trip is the only one of these movies that you actually saw. And you're probably fine for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got to thinking about what it really meant to people for it to be the summer of love, the summer of 1967. Like It's easy to look back on it and see the various things it meant to various people. 
And I know that people knew that something was happening, something was in the air, it's a summer of love. I guess it's sort of part of what I'm trying to deal with with all of these episodes that we're recording. You know, it's easy enough for us to sit on our couches and watch these movies and try to imagine what things were like and be critical of these movies that were made at a very particular point in time with, uh, you know, particular agendas and trying to appeal to a particular crowd. But what did any of this stuff mean to the people who actually lived through it? We need to get some people from our parents' generation onto this show. Well, you know, I I think that, like, Timothy Leary kind of hits the nail on the head in that way because, because of, you know, his his whole thing about how this is a an age of, of people that are literally from a different, it's just a completely different scenario than, than their parents are. There's just really, they don't have anything in common with them, which is something you're kind of seeing now when people rag on millennials because you have a, a group of people, a, a really wide group too, millennials, it's like from almost 40 to like 20 or something. That There's some insane group that, that really is not that connected, but grew up with computers or grew up with phones even. And these sort of things where they don't even understand a world without it. And then the parents can't understand why they're spending so much time on these gadgets. And yet, like, probably their parents were thinking, uh, oh, you spent all that time in, in the movie theater or watching television. And, and it's, so it's kind of funny to see this, you know, that when, when these generation gaps are just so wide. And I think that, you know, this is a group of people that, especially at this time, were looking for human connections. They were looking for a way to be aware and to be real. And it's kind of like that scene in The Lovin' with the, the daughter yelling at her father about how, you know, you, you all do things in secrecy and you, you say one thing and you do another thing. And, and this is a generation of people that just want to be. We just want to do everything out in the open. We don't want to pretend. We don't want to have the facade, which isn't to say that they didn't still do that, obviously. I mean, like the whole summer of love, the fact that this clashes, you know, with things like feminism or that you did still have this racial divide despite the fact that it was always calling for like, yeah, everyone like come sit around and like, let's hang out. We're all one. And yet it was always like largely white. So there's all these things that, that don't get addressed, obviously. And the hippie movement didn't do much really. It dissolved pretty much. I, I know George Harrison was really disappointed when he went to hate to check out what the scene was because he said, oh, it's just like a bunch of people getting high. And that wasn't really for him what was uh, moving the world and what was important. And I mean, I think on one hand, you can argue that just getting high was pretty revolutionary, <laughs> like in owning it, just just being able to say, I'm just going to sit here and make myself happy. Or, I'm just going to sit here and be and just live and, and be content with that. I think that that has merit to it. But at the same time, I, I can't help but also think, oh, what wasted potential. Like you all managed to organize, but you didn't manage to come up with one thing to really defeat. I saw that, you know, in my experiences in college, it was funny whenever they were doing student protests, I had kind of similar experiences where you show up to a protest for, I don't know, the student union and then everyone there is talking about legalizing marijuana or something, which is, which is a valid thing to protest about, but it was so disorganized and discouraging. And, and I think that's what happened to a lot of people, quite frankly. And so it is kind of interesting. I don't know. I find the whole thing pretty fascinating. I have a, a level of respect for the sort of hippieism. I think that it's it's enviable in a way to be that that free. But 
Yeah, it shook things up on a social level. I mean, as far as political protesting goes, maybe there was no lasting effect there. We didn't put an end to conservatism, that's for sure, which I think was uh, one of the goals. But uh, it's just uh, an example of the uh, pendulum swinging to one particular extreme. And and I think that it's nice to be able to point to 1967 and say, uh, here was where the pendulum kind of hit the outermost point of its swing and and we swung back but if people weren't willing to experiment with living this way and turning their backs on the hypocrisies of the previous generation and and breaking away from the status quo and you know really rethinking what the point of life is and if it's really just to have a house in the suburbs and two and a half children and if it weren't for these extremes, we may not be as uh, far along with the social advances we've made at this point. Uh, I think the world is probably a much, uh, at least from my perspective, a much more accepting place of, of others and other lifestyles because of the extremes that these kids went to in 1967. Yeah, I agree with that. It's definitely something to be said for just having done it. And especially to look back on it when you haven't experienced it, it's really easy to sort of pick up on that and feel really empowered by seeing that this happened. It makes me think of actually Occupy Wall Street, which got a lot of flack when it happened as being similarly disorganized and and meaningless. Uh, And yet at the same time, now everyone knows what I mean when I say Occupy Wall Street and everyone knows what the point of that was. Everyone knows what we are the 99% means or what the 1% is. All of these words suddenly are now in in everyone's vocabulary. And if nothing else, that's pretty damn worth it. That's kind of how I see these movements. It's not that they were perfect and they could have been better, but I don't know. I I have to give hippies uh, some credit there because I agree that, that they opened up a discussion and they definitely banished uh, a lot of that 50s conservatism, or at least they began the slow <laughs> uphill battle of chipping it from the media, which, you know, we still have today. It's funny, especially when people talk about like a uh, left wing Hollywood or whatever. And it's like, man, like you still can't say most curses on television. You still can't, uh, you know, show certain things. And I feel like until really recently are these boundaries being more dramatically broken down. And even then they're still... You know, now we're talking about uh, what races and sexes and and genders and all sorts of things uh, aren't being shown. I think it's neat that these conversations at least are happening. Yeah, thanks, hippies. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.